joined by Tony, who's the Head of Communications at Veganuary, which I have to say is quite a, an interesting job, and I'm really looking forward to hearing everything about all things vegan, particularly considering the time of the year. So let me start by welcoming you, Tony, to the Food Talk Show. Hello, thank you for having me. So start off a bit by telling us a bit about Veganuary, in, I suppose your role, and then let's kind of get into, I suppose, where it came from and, and, and where it's going. Yeah, so um, we're a UK-registered charity, and our mission really is to encourage and support people to try vegan during the month of January, but also any time of the year, people can take part any time they like. Um, and we also work with businesses throughout the year as well to help increase the availability of vegan products, the affordability of vegan products, and basically just make it easier for more people to eat more plant-based options more of the time. Um, so I'm the head of communications. So obviously, I'm responsible for all of our external comms and making sure that we're always presenting a friendly and supportive face of veganism, never a judgmental one. And then also um, dealing with the media, making sure that, you know, the issues that we care about are receiving enough public attention so people are aware of the benefits of trying vegan. Um, and then Veganuary itself has been going for 10 years now. So this January will be the 10th Veganuary Pledge, um, started by a husband and wife couple who were, you know, both vegan advocates and they realized that, while there were a lot of organisations out there um, sort of campaigning on the reasons why people should try veganism, there weren't really many organisations that were dedicated simply to providing support for people who wanted to try it. So they thought, well, what better way to do it than, you know, one of these um, one month challenges like you get with Movember and Dry January, you know, people just dipping their toe in the water and seeing what they think we know that makes it a lot easier for people to make changes so they set up Veganuary and in the first year you know they were thought oh we'll be happy if you know a hundred people sign up <laughs> and instead three thousand people signed wow. up and then it's just grown and grown since then. But you, it's funny you mentioned things like Movember and others I, I see Veganuary as quite an early one on in terms of sort of taking a month and trying to own it does it does it predate a lot of those or is it are they all kind of a similar age? No, uh, Dry January and Movember are both older. Are they? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. They were inspired by those two. Yeah, they existed first. Interesting, interesting. And so I suppose, so the, so the challenge really is, is is to eat vegan for the month of January. And, you're, and the idea, I suppose, is to use that as a gateway to adopting a more vegan lifestyle. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, we know for, you know, most of the people who take part in Veganuary do reduce the amount of animal products they eat afterwards. So they might find, you know, a particular brand of, you know, vegan sausages that they like. They start eating those or a particular brand of plant milk and incorporate that into their diet. And then quite often they'll take part again the following year and make some more changes I mean, about 25% do stay vegan afterwards, but about 80% actually reduce afterwards. That's more common. 
And I suppose that's an outcome that you guys are, are happy with, are you? Because I suppose it's very interesting. In your introduction, you used the word non-judgmental, um, which I think often, you know, some movements can, you know, feel um, quite judgmental. Is your ambition just to kind of inspire people to, you know, make make some small changes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really understand that the way human behaviour works, it's very difficult for people to completely alter their lifestyle overnight. You know, for us, you know, we want to be realistic about this and gradual change is the way that most people make lifestyle changes. And, and it's the way that changes stick as well. You know, there's no point in expecting everyone to go vegan overnight when we know that for most people, if they attempted that, they would fail. You know, it's really hard. It's something that we've been brought up doing, um, eating animal products. We do it multiple times a day. You know, for many people, it's steeped in tradition and customs and memories. So, you know, you can't disregard all of these factors. I think you really have to acknowledge that, you know, I certainly was brought up eating meat. Um, you know, it's, it's just a part of our culture and it's really hard to expect people just to change that overnight. So you said that in the first year they were expecting tens of people and 3,000 joined. What, how many people joined and registered last year and what's your hope for this January? Last year we had um, our highest number yet. It was over, it was about three quarters of a million worldwide. Um, but we know that many more people actually participate than officially sign up with us. So most people who I speak to when I say I work for Veganuary say, what do you mean you work for them? Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, well, it's actually a charity. You know, people sign up to do Veganuary. And they're like, what do you mean people sign up? Like, I've done it the last three years in a row. I didn't know you signed up for it. I've just done it. Um, so we know that we did a survey last year to see how many people have actually done Veganuary since we started. And it showed that this was with YouGov and they found that almost 10% of the British population say they've done Veganuary at some point, which would be, you know, 6 million people, which is like twice as many as we've had actually sign up with us worldwide <laughs> in 10 years. So we've kind of given up on estimating how many people will officially sign up because we know that that really is just a drop in the ocean compared to the number who are actually doing it. And you said that one of the things you offer is support. Um, so what, do, what does that look like and, and what, what, why are you trying to give people support? Yeah, when people do officially sign up on our website, they get loads of free resources. So they'll get um, a celebrity e-cookbook and a starter kit. They get an email every day during the month of January or, you know, whatever, 31 days they choose to sign up. And in there, there will be like 12 separate weekly meal plans they can follow from, you know, a budget meal plan to gluten-free, soya-free, you know, high calorie, low calorie, you know, depending on, on what their needs are. And then every day there's also fresh new recipes in there, loads of nutritional information. So that's a really important aspect of what we provide, making sure people know where to get the nutrients that they need. And then also information on sort of the impacts of animal agriculture. So a lot of people are really, they know they should be eating less meat for the environment, but they're not really sure why. So we try and explain to people like exactly where the impact is coming from in producing these products. Interesting. I mean, one of the things. So, uh, someone once said to me that there are there are three types of, um, of of vegan dishes. There are ones where 
they are naturally vegan, right? In the sense that you look at a cuisine and it just instinctively cooks in a vegan way. I think of Indian food as being, you know, probably the, the kind of yes. the, the, the killer cuisine in it. There are there are dishes where you can make some very minor modifications where actually you're not really sacrificing anything. It doesn't impact flavour. It's kind of, there's meat there and it's kind of a bit pointless, right? Or meat products are there and it doesn't really add hugely to the dish itself. And then there are the third category of ones which are fundamentally reliant upon meat products and actually in attempting to do those dishes from a vegan approach, actually you normally end up with either really complicated and crazy processes which don't necessarily add any value and in fact might even be kind of more problematic. Do you sort of agree with that sort of segmentation? And, and I suppose, do you, which are the cuisines that you feel lean best into vegan cooking naturally? Oh, there's so many that do really. I mean, obviously, Indian food is a classic example. A lot of Chinese dishes, you know, any sort of Southeast Asian, really, because they naturally eat a lot of tofu and tempeh. Um, so a lot of their dishes contain that anyways, instead of a meat, you know, so you're looking at vegetables with tofu or tempeh and various different sauces. Um, Italian food, you know, any sort of dried pasta that you buy in the supermarket is vegan. So, you know, with a tomato sauce on it, like a lot of the tomato sauces are vegan as well. So Italian food's very easy, even things like gnocchi. Um, and then like a lot of British food can easily be veganized. So something like a cottage pie, you know, you just use a plant milk in the mash and you use a, a vegan mince instead of beef mince. And, you know, with your gravy powder, like which is already vegan, like all the oxo onion or vegetable gravies are vegan as they come. So, you know, you use the same gravy powder. So you're really only swapping out a few ingredients there. Interesting. I mean, you're. I mean, I'm definitely a believer in in the the sort of particularly the Southeast Asian food, where you know there really doesn't feel like there's any compromise at all. And I suppose countries where they just historically not used meat products the way we have in the West. I think the complicated thing for me, in some ways, thinking about it from a British perspective, is I remember a chef once saying to me that you know historically, you know, you know, in the 70s, 80s, we were terrible at cooking vegetables as a country. You know, we sort of <laughs> boiled them. And and actually, I think we did a kind of massive disservice to vegetables during that period. But I think that's changing now, don't you think, in terms of the way that people are kind of beginning to learn to, I think, more be more creative in the way they handle vegetables. Oh, definitely. And, you know, we've had chefs like Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. He's done whole cookbooks dedicated to, you know, wonderful things you can do with vegetables. And he's a big believer that, when you, you know, leave the meat off your plate, you're not actually missing out on anything because you can showcase the wonderful taste and texture of vegetables. And I definitely think that's changed quite dramatically over the past 10 years, like things like Brussels sprouts and celeriac, you know, even Swede, like really having a comeback beetroot, you know, people using them in much more creative ways and really making them the centerpiece of, of the plate it's funny isn't it because i think you you, you go through that list and, and I, in my own head i'm sort of working through and going okay yes i've you know i would definitely say i've embraced celeriac i would say swede remains an outlier for me i don't, <laughs> I don't think i've yet kind of worked out what to, i think i have a couple of swede in my in my fridge at the moment what to do with them well um and beet, beetroot definitely but it's funny isn't it you almost need to kind of you i think there's that game in in teaching people to cook with vegetables you need to give them you know, simple but inspiring recipes that show them 
as you say, to use that Hugh comment, you're not missing out. Mm, it's so true. I mean, our, the, there was a few recipes in his first Veg Everyday Cookbook that I still make, and every time I'm like, this is mainly carrots, and I can't believe how good this tastes. You know, or this is mainly like this is a cauliflower roasted with some spices, and it is absolutely delicious. Whereas you think back to what you ate growing up when your mum just overboiled something to the point of being mush and put some margarine on it. It's a whole different dish, you know, it's a whole different vegetable. But unless you have access to that information, you know, you don't know. I mean, many, many people in Britain wouldn't even know how to boil carrots. Like they're just so used to eating takeaways and ready meals and, you know, really like easy fixes that even something as simple as boiling potatoes, many people don't know how to do that. Yeah, there's definitely a a kind of a culinary barrier here. But I think there's also kind of an imaginative barrier here where you sort of you need to try and, you know, I do think that the flavours of, you know, non, you know, Indian flavours, Chinese flavours, Indonesian, etc. actually work, you know, really well with vegetables and you need to be prepared to embrace those, don't you? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very true. It does really like, yes, the carrot dish I'm thinking of as cumin and coriander yeah. and, you know, spices that wouldn't naturally necessarily be in the British palate. So, yeah, you do have to experiment and branch out. <laughs> I think one of the other challenges that, 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 that sort of the vegan movement faces is the quality of vegetables. Um, that are that are so widely available, and I was reading um, Isabella Tree's book the other day about rewilding, and she she quotes extensively about the sort of the the change in nutrients that's actually in vegetables nowadays versus twenty thirty years ago. And isn't one of the challenges we're faced with is that actually a lot of vegetables, because of the way they're grown, are pretty flavourless, and there is a need you, you do need to spend you know, a little bit more money to get vegetables that are going to kind of, you know, stand up on their own on the plate. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is an issue. And and particularly at the moment, I mean, some of my local supermarkets, when you go in there, the vegetables just look dreadful. The shelves are half empty. You know, we're we're struggling just to get vegetables on the shelves at the moment, let alone ones with flavour. Um, I mean, I personally am a huge fan of frozen vegetables because Mm. they have flavor. They're easy for families to have, you know, a variety in. Like I live on my own. So if I want to have a variety of vegetables in a day, frozen is really the way to go because the, the fresh stuff will just rot before I get around to eating all of it. And because it's frozen, you know, at source, when it's picked, it tends to be quite nutrient dense compared to something that is then shipped and sits on the supermarket shelf for ages and more flavorful. Interesting. So, so but was, but see, I mean, I, I, I struggle on, you know, I, I definitely have some vegetables, I would say, that are in my freezer, probably peas, spinach, but those are maybe moish too, but that's kind of the core. What else are you embracing? Oh, I have frozen Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, green beans, um, chopped leeks. (laughs) Basically, if I can get it frozen, I will buy it. Sweet corn. (laughs) But are you freezing yourself? Fresh vegetables? Oh, no, no. No, No. these are just, you know, coming frozen from the supermarket. Okay, interesting, interesting. So in terms of, I mean, the barriers to to people embracing a more kind of veg-first vegan life what do you think are the things that are really kind of getting in the way of of a, of a more sort of mass adoption of, of a veg first approach 
Yeah, we actually survey our participants on this. So at the end of their one month pledge, we send them a survey to sort of ask them quite a few questions about how they found it. And we ask them what they found to be the biggest challenge. And every year, the top two are eating out and dealing with friends and family. And, you know, a lot of people are very surprised by that. But like missing non-vegan food items comes far down the list. That's not you know, top of the list ever. Um, Cooking at home, people don't have a problem. You know, if they're eating at home, they're finding recipes, they're not finding that a challenge. It's when they go out to eat. And I think that's, you know, partly probably compounded by pressure from friends and family. You know, if you're going out with your friends and family for dinner, it just complicates things even more because you need to try and go somewhere where, you, you know, everyone can get something that they want and, you know, their favorite restaurant might not have much available for vegans and so on. Um, but the pressure from friends and family, you know, we cannot underestimate that. We are social creatures. And if you're not getting support from the people closest to you, and in fact, they're actively antagonistic, you know, then then that will really have an impact on your dietary choices. To what degree do you think that's generational? I mean, you know, I, I suppose I'm, look, I'm late 40s. You know, if I spoke to my kids about eating veg first, they're like, yeah, sure. I mean, they don't even consider it a kind of a conversation. Um, but I sense, and certainly from the research I've done and seen, that older generation is more kind of resistant to change because obviously they've got more ingrained eating habits do you think that's true or do you think it's across the board no i think to certainly to a certain degree that's true i think there's a lot of demographics in it as well you know if you're a a gym bro you know say a man in your early 20s who's really into the gym i think you might find your social circle being a bit less supportive of you deciding you're going to try a vegan diet so i think there's elements to it of that even at at younger ages um, but certainly, yeah, going out to eat with, you know, parents, even grandparents, I think, would definitely present one of the biggest challenges for most people. And then there's also, you know, kids are fussy eaters. So people who are trying to do it at home and they've got a family to feed might have to prepare, you know, several different variations of a meal because the kids are really picky and they don't like vegetables. So I think there's various different elements that play into that. I'm, I am very blessed with having two children who, who basically will eat anything, which, which, which does, which does <laughs> to be fair, range from duck hearts to celeriac. So, you know, but if I give them, I would say we eat a lot of, you know, veg first meals during the week. And there is, you know, there, the, my son will, will be like, when are we having, you know, something meaty? But they, they absolutely love it. But I think it's a difficulty, right? Which is actually lots of kids are given, you know, school food, often where the vegetables are more, have more in common with, I'll call it the 1970s approach to vegetables than what probably we're doing today. And I think there is therefore a kind of a challenge amongst children to get them to um, to often embrace that kind of stuff. And look, God, in, in, in a busy parent lifestyle, cooking more than one meal for, for, for the family is, is a nightmare. Exactly. And that is precisely, you know, why Veganuary takes a non-judgmental approach, because we completely appreciate that life is complicated for most people. And you know, you, I don't know what it's like for a single mother of three who's working full time to try and feed her, her family, you know, in the limited time and budget that she has. Right. So trying to put yourself in other people's shoes and realizing it's not simple for everyone to make these changes. And, 
it can be, you know, particularly I, I remember very clearly my niece was such a fussy eater and my sister was vegan and trying to raise my niece vegan. And it was just impossible. Like she, all she would eat was pizza pops, you know, these little frozen things that you heated up in the microwave. You know, it was really like if she would eat those and, and tofu hot dogs and that was it. Um, you know, sometimes you just have to go with what's available to you as a parent, right? What's actually going to work, what your child's going to eat just to get the calories inside them. No, totally. And look, I think that the challenge of, of encouraging and inspiring children to eat imaginatively is a, is a, is a, is a massive um, challenge, particularly when you are constrained budget-wise, time-wise, um, and don't have the culinary background that, that some of us obviously are lucky enough to have where we feel comfortable turning, you know, you talked about simple pasta dishes with a few tomatoes and, you know, a bit of basil and olive oil and, you know, a sprinkling of chilli. You know, that's delicious, right? But some people don't have the confidence to, to obviously to play with that. I'm interested by, exactly. by one of the other things you said about barriers. You said that eating out was a barrier. I'm, I feel that restaurants are getting better at offering a and maybe it's not the range that that you're you're you think is required, but they're getting better at catering for vegans, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I always find this one baffling because I I'm spoiled for choice. I mean, I live in Brighton, so really, like, there's vegan places within ten minutes of my house that I've never been to because there's so much choice here in Brighton and you know London. So I think if you're in any major city, you're good. You know, there's plenty of stuff on the high street. I think. It's probably people who aren't in big metropolitan areas who still struggle. So your country pub, I mean, they will have a vegan option now, certainly more than, you know, I've been vegan 30 years and then you really were stuck with chips. But now there's always one vegan option. It just might be quite unimaginative. You know, you might get sick of having a, a falafel wrap everywhere that you go. Um, and then there's also sometimes just an element of potluck. Like you, if you don't know which places have good vegan offerings, you could walk into a place, you know, when you're on the high street in London and try and get a sandwich and there's very limited choice when the place right next to it has an amazing vegan selection and you just weren't aware of it. So I think a lot of it is knowledge, um, knowing where to go. And once you've sussed that out, then I don't find eating out a problem. And even worldwide, like I have an app on my phone called Happy Cow, and it will tell me no matter where I am in the world, you know, the nearest places where I can get vegan food. So the technology is making it easier and easier. Interesting. I hadn't heard of the Happy Cow app. That's a good recommendation. I mean, it's funny though, isn't it? Because I, I often find that when I eat out, I will go for the veg offering partially because i think if i'm in an interesting restaurant i'm actually seeing how the chef cooks because often i think a mm. chef can be lazy in terms of you know beautiful piece of meat fish simple sauce you know, actually you can get away with a lot i think actually you lay down the corner saying you've just got vegetables actually i do think in a, in a restaurant setting you have to step up that's very true. Yeah. And, you know, in a, it is the test of a chef, really, of, of how well they can prepare vegetables. And if you're unsure, you know, try and opt for a Thai restaurant or an Indian restaurant, you know, somewhere that will naturally have 
vegan options on the menu where they're used to cooking, you know, veg first and using all the flavors that, that bring it to life. But certainly if you're treating yourself, you know, somewhere fancy, it is nice to see what they can do with vegetables because they really can pull it out of the bag and produce some of the most incredible flavors. I think one of the interesting things, though, I was at a restaurant the other day where calorie counts were, you know, it's obviously now a big thing is on the menus and obviously an important thing, right, on the basis of, of the obesity levels and stuff in the UK. And I was interested to see that actually often the vegan dish actually had a higher calorie count than some of the other ones. And I, you know, look, I, you know, this was, and I, and I sort of, I think that's a real challenge, actually, because I do think if you're going to eat vegan, a lot of people are doing it because they think it's better for the planet and for themselves. Don't you, do you think, do you not think that's kind of a challenge that we should sort of issue to the, um, I suppose, the hospitality industry to make sure that they're being, I suppose, truthful to what a vegan wants in that sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, when they started bringing out vegan options, you know, this is that, you know, manufacturers as well as hospitality, it was just about getting the flavors and the texture and, you know, trying to replicate the meat version as much as possible and making it feel indulgent for people. So they didn't think they were missing out. And now they're realizing, actually, you know, we need to try and make these at least like, the same salt level as the meat version, you know, no, no more fat than the non-vegan version. Like they are trying to bring it back a bit and, and realize that actually people don't just care about the flavor and, and the experience. They do care about the health elements as well. Because I think partly it's because for so long a vegan diet was just lentils and rice and vegetables and it was very, you know, very healthy and all very earnest. And then it went the other way. It did like literally a 180 and was like, no, we're going to make this burger as greasy and as fatty, you know, and as indulgent as it can be. And thankfully now I think swings are things are swinging back to a bit of a happy middle ground it's such an interesting complete misunderstanding isn't it of actually what people want that you know look i get the fact that you know people don't want to feel as you said that you know vegan food is only kind of lentils and the like but that doesn't mean you want to feel like you're eating something that is kind of dirty and you know full of you know like big flavors and kind of you know, just not healthy. It's, 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 I mean, I, I think, look, I think the, the burger people in particular have a lot to answer for in this area because I think they've kind of gone the wrong way. Yeah, and I remember, you know, again, like having been vegan for so long, when you first started being able to get these really indulgent vegan burgers, I was all over it. I was like, yes, this is amazing. And very quickly, you know, I think within a year, myself and, and all of my friends who had been long-term vegans, we were like, I'm so over these burgers. Mm. Like, I really just want to go to a restaurant and eat something healthy and flavorful. Like, I don't want to be eating this. So, yeah, I, and I think they're learning that. I think it really, it, the tides are turning now and they're realizing that even people who are vegan entirely for ethical reasons, and it has nothing to do with health, don't want to feel, you know, that level of sort of indulgent, greasy, rich food all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you mentioned up front, you said you work with um, with brands to help them kind of think about how they can a- appeal to the sort of the, the wider group of people who are vegan. Tell me a bit about the kind of stuff you're trying to do there and some of the challenges that some of the brands face. Yeah, I think, you know, at the minute it's 
price, really. Like you hear from consumers all the time that it's price is, is what the number one concern is at the moment. And a lot of the brands really are trying to bring in price parity. So certainly, at least the supermarkets, you know, with their own brands, they're trying to bring in price parity with, with the non-vegan version, because they realize that for most people, this is the barrier. But even some of the big brands like Richmond Sausages, you know, they're bringing in price parity. I mean, their sausages, their vegan ones were only ever about 10p more than their meat ones, but they're bringing in price parity as well. Um, so I think that really is the biggest challenge for them because economies of scale and everything else does make it more difficult to sell the vegan version, you know, at the same price. But they realize that if they want to survive, that's the priority for them. And then also reducing ingredient lists, because obviously there's been a lot of publicity in the media about long ingredient lists and things you've not heard of in vegan products. And again, the industry has gone, okay, we're going to listen to that. And, you know, you're right. Some of these things we've used because it's easy, you know, and there's other alternatives out there and we can work on improving this product. So making it healthier and tastier and the texture better. So the technology, you know, the the quality of the products is improving all the time and they're always working to do that. Um, so we try and feed that kind of information into them from our participant surveys and then the, the products that people miss the most. So we know that vegan cheese is still <laughs> the thing that people miss the most. And even though there's a lot of vegan cheeses out there, they're just not comparable. You know, they, unless you're buying the very expensive like artisan nut cheeses, what you can buy in the supermarkets really is nothing like real cheese. And, and people miss that. So I'm expecting a no comment from the, my first question. So I'll follow up with the second one. My first question is, I heard on the grapevine that a lot of the anti-long um, list ingredients, Frankenstein ingredients piece was being funded by the meat industry. I mean, I have no idea on that, but it certainly hit the headlines in a big way. <laughs> and you certainly noticed that certain newspapers are much more keen to publish that sort of information than others. So, you know, I guess, I mean, on some levels, it's a fair cop. It is a fair cop. Like, it is a fair cop. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with pointing these things out and the industry, you know, reacting to it in a positive way. But it's definitely overblown. Like, OK, you might not see all those ingredients on a packet of beef mints, but a lot goes into that animal Correct. while they're on the farm Correct. that isn't listed on the ingredients, right? So yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's not a fair comparison. Exactly. I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Which is the truth is, is that they're able to say this is beef, right? Or this is chicken. But as you rightly say, the, the inputs to that ingredient creation is a lot more complicated than they want to make it seem. Um, exactly. So just, I have to pick you up on the vegan cheese thing, which is not something I thought I would pick anyone up on ever. Was <laughs> I, and I admit, I, so I went to Waitrose over the summer, admittedly Waitrose, so hands up, and I, for a laugh, bought some vegan cheese because I have never eaten a decent vegan cheese. And admittedly, it was a more expensive one. Um, I think it was a blue cheese. And I gave it to... Um, a friend's mother, uh, who's French. And I said, what do you think of this? Right? And she's like, this is delicious. And I said, it's vegan. And she's like, no, no. <laughs> and she said, and, I, and for me, she was, you know, she's probably, you know, late 60s, early 70s, you know, lived in France for a lot of her life. And she was like, 
that really stacks up. And I'm like, and I and I agreed with her. I was like, wow, it really did actually. Um, so I think people are making progress. I just hope that in that in that, I, I do worry about that final category of trying to, you know, as we said earlier about sort of trying to replicate meat or animal based products. You often end up going through processes and, and manufacturing that, you know, might end up in a, in a bad place. Yeah, I know the brand you're talking about, and that is actually a very good brand. So what there is the are brand? Some out Remind there. It's me of honest, the brand. Honestly Tasty. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they're not stocked in many supermarkets yeah. as of yet, but they're definitely in Waitrose. Um, and, and that is very true. And I think a lot of these products you have to just think of as their own entity rather mm. than trying to emulate the animal counterpart. Because a lot of the nut-based cheeses are very delicious products and you can have them on a cracker and, you know, you really enjoy the experience. But if you're always comparing it to animal-based cheese, then, I, I, you know, they just will never be the same. Um, so you have to enjoy them a lot of the time in their own right, rather than always trying to replicate an animal version. Interesting. No, I mean, I have to say, well, thank you for reminding me of the name, because I was, I, was, I was impressed by, I thought, what they were doing. And I think that is that challenge, isn't it? Which is, look, you know, what I suppose my, my perspective on this conversation is, I look, I'm not vegan. You know, I, I normally do meat-free January, not veganuary. But I'd say that I think the important point is that we all find ways to eat more sustainably, right? Exactly. And, and, and for me, that, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I work with the guys at uh, Yumbug, which is an insect-based um, protein, and the founder is vegan. Um, and he actually, you know, he is someone who um, want, wanted to work out how do you get protein into his diet in the most, you know, uh, carbon neutral way and he said the answer is insects um mm. and it's interesting that you know i would i don't you know it's not it wouldn't appeal to many vegans because obviously for other ethical reasons and other stuff but but his view was you know actually you need to take a broader view if, if sustainability is your main driver it's worth you know thinking broadly about you know avoiding certain vegan products that might be have a heavy footprint because of the way they're manufactured and also potentially embracing things that might not be vegan because it gets you what you need so it's quite i think i think it's, it's a nuanced conversation isn't it absolutely yeah and exactly as you say like it really depends why you're drawn to veganism right if you're doing it for ethical reasons then insects arguably would be the last thing you'd eat because you need to eat so many more of them so mm. from an individual suffering point yep. of view you know the numbers are going to be much greater but from a sustainability point of view then as you say you know it's going to be much more sustainable than even you know free-range organic pasture-fed beef which from an ethical point of view you could argue is the best thing you could eat so there's always these clashes and and so it really is a case of finding what's important to you and making the changes that are manageable for you in your life and that prioritize the aspects that are you know biggest priority for you but i think this is that i'm you know i'm sort of heartened by your response on that because i think the, the the challenge for me about all this stuff is i don't think we're going to get anywhere on this planet if we spend our time shouting at each other yes i think the game in some ways is, is you look you started with that word up front where you talked about you know sort of respect and and, and sort of sensitivity in, in the um in the conversation i think what's really important is that we we have a nuanced conversation about this rather than you know what i personify as the kind of the democrat republican um, debate that goes on in America, uh, which is just two different sides shouting at each other and achieving nothing. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, at January, we really 
pride ourselves in having a non-dogmatic approach and being open to these discussions. You know, we've got um, a closed Facebook group for Veganuary participants they can sign up to, and it's there to give people advice on questions like, can I eat eggs from backyard hens? And, you know, these sorts of things. Or like, I have a certain condition and it means that I really need to keep this animal product in my diet. What's the, you know, most sustainable source of it? And, you know, and, and the people who give the advice in there don't judge. They go, okay, you know, this is where you're at and I'm going to help you and make this as easy for you as possible. And we have to monitor it. <laughs> you know, we have to be really strict on who we let in to this Facebook group, because inevitably you'll end up with someone who's like, just think of the animals, you know, give it all up now. And you're like, that's not helpful to anyone. Mm. So you do have to police these things because dogma, unfortunately, is an, an easy default for so many people rather than having these nuanced conversations that can be really uncomfortable and, and question your fundamental beliefs. People don't like that often. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because I have to say, you know, I, I think that, you know, look, we can we could all point at lots of political groups, we could point at lots of dietary groups, which I think have become very dogmatic over the last few years. And, and certainly I think there is a very dogmatic group of vegans, there's a very dogmatic group of animal eaters, you know, who think that, you know, vegans are trying to sort of take over the world and, and you know, and not allow people to have freedom of speech. And we all know the newspapers that support those views. Um, but it's, I think it's really, you know, I, it's a lovely kind of, you know, thought to end with in some ways that, you know, one of the ways that we're going to move this conversation forward is sort of respectfully engaging in each other's dietary differences, I'll call them, and, and opening up, you know, interesting conversations about the way we move things forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really, that is, like, I've worked for many different animal groups in my life, and that is what I like the most about Veganuary's approach, is just how inclusive and welcoming it is. And, you know, we will work with every brand out there. Like some people might say, well, why are you working with Richmond? You know, they produce all of these meat products. So they're responsible for the suffering of all of these animals. But they're a massive brand that people trust. So if they're bringing out a plant-based sausage, you know, that's the one that most people who are just wanting to start experimenting with meat-free options, that's the one they're going to buy. Because they're like, I know Richmond sausages. I like them. I'll try their plant-based version, you know, over a brand they've never heard of on the supermarket shelf. So it's really important that we're just all working towards the same goal. We need to get people eating less meat. And these are the companies that are going to have the biggest impact. A hundred percent. I mean, no, it's a, I, you know, when you mentioned Richmond, I did, the, you know, sort of going through my mind was like, look, you know, aren't they part of the problem and look they are part of the problem as mcdonald's are as you know the big meat producers are but as you rightly say if we want to have an impact you know you have to dance with the, the people who've got the impact the potential to make changes right and actually people are comfortable with richmond sausages okay in the end if they can make a you know a sustainably produced meat-free sausage that appeals to a large number of people let's get on board with them you know because it's <laughs> exactly. you know, I, I, I completely get it and it might be the gateway, right? They'll try the Richmond one and be like, okay, okay, these meat-free sausages aren't that bad. Now I'm going to, you know, I'm going to branch out and I'm going to try some of these other brands. And then, oh, I might try tofu, you know, because I've realized that actually uh, some of these other flavors and textures are really nice. And we certainly find that when people start taking those first steps, they might use a lot of these meat substitutes 
because they don't know what else to eat. But once they've accepted those, they'll be like, okay, well, now I'm ready to branch out a bit more and I'll try things like tofu and tempeh and, you know, recipes that just use vegetables and spices. So it's kind of, it really is that the first step on the ladder. Amazing. Tony, listen, thank you very much for that. I have to say a a, a really hopeful way um, to think about um, veganism and also a chance to think more imaginatively about what veganery can be about. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Ollie on The Food Talk Show. Please do hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us.